Some of us wonder and perhaps investigate where is it that we come from? You may look into your family's ancestry. Who were your great relatives? What kind of people were they? What movements were they involved in or what beliefs did they have? My mom really got into Ancestry.com several years ago with an interest in tracing where our family came from. She discovered a direct lineage back to William Brewster, who was on the Mayflower coming over with the Pilgrims. Another of my ancestors fought for the evil Confederacy during the Civil War. Families and lineages are complicated. Some may have done heroic acts and others participated in evil movements or did terrible things. Most ancestors were probably flawed people somewhere in between, sort of like us today. Tracing our own histories also describes the ancient Israelites tracing their history in the book of Genesis. Good people bad people, heroic acts, and vile acts. Also, some strange and rather bizarre actions. The ancients, in tracing their story, thought back to the very beginning. The first two people, Adam and Eve, whose accounts had perhaps been received from oral traditions and stories that had been passed down for ages. What were Adam and Eve like? What was their relationship with God like? Also, is there a theological truth from the lives of Adam and Eve, a deep bass note type truth of something that they experienced that explains why there is evil and terrible things that happen in the world today? While focusing on God and God's work in forming and shaping creation from a cosmic perspective in the opening chapter of Genesis, ancient people now shifted the perspective to a more specific account of the creation of humanity. Many scholars and people refer to Genesis 2 as a second creation account. This is Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. Welcome to... Does the Bible say that? Okay, okay, here we are for episode number five of Does the Bible Say That? I'm the host, David Lester, and thank you for listening. If you like what is happening on this podcast now five episodes in, I would encourage you to leave a review and rate this podcast wherever you like to get podcasts, wherever fine podcasts are sold. These couple of, first couple of episodes will be just me talking into the microphone about the book of Genesis to you. However, I do have, I, I have been in communication with a few people out there about perhaps coming on as guests on this show, so I am excited about that. If you are interested in being a guest on one of these passages of Genesis upcoming, hey, maybe find me online. I'm on the Blue Sky app. I am on the X formerly known as Twitter app, at Dave J. Lester. You can email me, DaveLester1980 at gmail.com. 
At the top of this episode, on the bulk of Genesis 2, let's start with the fairly common scholarly claim of there being two creation accounts in the book of Genesis. Obviously one in chapter 1, and now a second one in chapter 2. Have you guys heard this out there? Uh, two creation accounts. If you've been in a comparative religion class, if you've been in a biblical studies class, um, if you've done any amount of seminary or just been around academic study of the Bible, you have probably heard this. You have probably run across articles online or perhaps read a book or two that references two creation accounts. So let's dive into that from the top to talk about if there is uh, merit to that claim and if there is, how to how to think about that. Like if, if we are Christians, how to think about that. Or uh, if you're a non-believer, a former believer, uh, just maybe as a note of interest of how people think about uh, these different uh, creation accounts between Genesis 1 and 2. So scholars and careful Bible readers compare and contrast uh, Genesis 1 and 2 up and against each other. And there, there are some, I, I would say, you know, differences or perhaps areas that, at least to be frank, need to be ironed out. Uh, so these differences, and we'll get into this here in this episode, feed the theory of how the Torah was initially written down and composed. So you may remember this from episode number two, uh, where there is a documentary hypothesis theory, which certainly met its challenge, especially in the 1970s, and certainly has challenges to it today. But the main premise of it that there were multiple people who wrote down the Torah and then it was edited and compiled over time. I, at least as a non-scholarly lay type person trying to understand all this stuff, I think there is definitely a lot of merit to that idea. And there may be merit to the idea as we get into some of these differences between Genesis one and two, that the author of Genesis chapter one and the author of Genesis chapter 2 are perhaps different people. And how this works is Genesis 2, depending on who you talk to and who you read, Genesis chapter 2 may have existed before Genesis 1. So someone's initial copy of the Torah, they're writing from Genesis 2, this passage that we're going to be exploring here in a second, and uh, going forward into uh, most of the rest of the Torah. And then at a later time, someone comes along and says, you know, we need to account for the cosmological, the, the huge beginning of everything that there is and that this all-powerful God spoke everything into existence. Genesis 1 was written and edited into the beginning of perhaps an already existing document. Um, so the, the thinking is many scholars will say that P again, with all the reservations and questions about the JEDP theory, uh, P wrote Genesis one. And then the theory advocates that J the Yahwist wrote most of the rest of Genesis, except for a few chapter exceptions. And then later the P source introduced revisions and expansions to Jay's writing. So Jay perhaps wrote our passage in Genesis chapter two. 
All right, so that was a little introduction to the issue of the two creation accounts. And now I think it'd be helpful if I actually read the passage and then we can talk about what some of those tensions are between this passage that I'm about to read and then the last two episodes that you heard, episodes three and four, related to the opening creation account of Genesis. So here we go. Let's read here on Does the Bible Say That? Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. This is the remainder of Genesis chapter 2. Quote, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being." Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, aromatic, resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the air, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame, unquote. That is Genesis chapter 2. 
So what do you all think from the reading of that chapter? Do you see some tensions and perhaps differences with the opening creation account of Genesis? Let's go ahead and dive into it here. Uh, First off, the Hebrew words for God are different between Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 uses a common word for God, Elohim, while Genesis 2, specifically Genesis 2-4, uses the compound phrase of Yahweh Elohim, a combination of the special name for the God of Israel, which is Yahweh, and the more general word for God, which is Elohim. This is one of the distinguishing factors, and there are others. In Genesis 1, God is portrayed as transcendent. He's this big being hovering over the waters of the deep, and he's speaking the universe and the world into existence. In Genesis 2, readers will notice God being described with more human-like qualities. God is forming animals from the ground. God is bringing man, Adam, up from the ground. This is in contrast to God speaking things into existence. God is planting a garden east of Eden. Later in chapter 3, God will be walking in the garden. Human-like qualities being ascribed to the divine. Okay, secondly... The opening chapter of Genesis has a focus on God declaring God's creation good over the six days of creation, and actually very good on day six. Interestingly enough, God declares that it is not good for man to be alone in this account, a possible distinguishing factor from the opening chapter, at least the way things were originally created There's an element of it that is not good because the man is alone. Thirdly, there appears to be a different order of the creative acts. BioLogos, in an article titled, What is the Relationship Between the Creation Accounts in Genesis 1 and 2? by J. Richard Middleton says, quote, Perhaps most significantly, for those attempting to harmonize Genesis with science, There is a different order of creative events in each chapter. To begin with, the two creation accounts open with different, indeed opposite, descriptions of the initial state of the world. Whereas Genesis 1 starts with the earth inundated with water, Genesis 1-2, so that God has to separate the waters for the dry land to emerge, Genesis 1-9, Genesis 2 begins with the earth as a dry wilderness, Genesis 2-5, until a stream or mist emerges to provide water, Genesis 2-6, then attending to just those creative events mentioned in both chapters, the following divergences are evident. Genesis 1 has water first, then land, followed by plants, animals, and finally humans, Adam, consisting in male and female together. By contrast, Genesis 2 begins with the existence of land, then comes water, followed by human, human Adam, later specified as a man, then plants, animals, and finally, a woman. Dr. Peter Enns further talks about the divergence in creative acts between the two chapters, writing in an article entitled, Israel's Two Creation Stories, quote, In Genesis 2, he creates in a more down-to-earth, hands-on fashion. Yahweh does not speak life into existence from on high. Rather, he forms the man from the earth like a potter. He also forms the animals. To animate this former 
lump of earth, God breathes life into him. He plants a garden. In order to give the man a suitable companion, he induces sleep on the man and literally builds a woman from part of the man's side. The two creation stories describe God's methods of creating in two different ways, unquote. So those are at least some of the apparent differences between Genesis 1 and 2. There may well be others if a person really dug into the ancient Hebrew language and literary style. So again, as noted before, it seems probable to me that the author of Genesis 2 is different than the author of Genesis 1. So Genesis 2 may have existed prior to Genesis 1 actually being written down and then compiled onto the existing Torah document in whatever age that we are talking about. So, And remember here, when we're talking about Genesis 1 and 2, we're talking about chapter divisions in the Bible, and those actually did not exist until 1551 when a French printer, Robert Estine, developed a numbered system for the Bible. And we thank him for that. You know, it's, it's easy to find things. It's e- easier for references and stuff like that. And then later in 1560, the Geneva Bible would have both chapter and verse divisions. So that's, that's a little bit of history there. You, you have to remember that back in ancient times, there's no such thing as chapters. It's, it's accounts and writing and then other writings being compiled and edited and added onto each other. So back to the two creation accounts. When Genesis chapter 2 talks about no shrub appearing on the earth and no plant had sprung up and no rain on the earth, there is a question about whether this is for the entire earth or is this just for a specific geographic location, for example, wherever the Garden of Eden was planted. So by the way, shrub likely refers to wild brush or vegetation that a person would see out in nature. Plant generally refers to crops that people would develop and would be food for people and animals. So these categories, again, from uh, the ancient authors, uh, like that of the categories for animals in the first chapter, wild versus domesticated or farm animals. So the question of is this kind of a universal creation account or a description of a geographic area? For the latter, it would be a description of agricultural land before humanity started farming or before God had tasked people with taking care of the garden or, you know, taking care of the earth. Is this claim about vegetation universal, which would which appear to cause a problem with the order of creation in Genesis chapter 1? Because recall that plants and vegetation were created in day three in Genesis chapter one. And in this environment, and when the agents are writing, this is the Middle East. And so referring to the climate as dry, as desert-like, I mean, this is literally where they lived. So this might be a way to broach the two creation accounts by saying that, you know, Genesis chapter two, this is talking about a more zoomed up geographic location where they were on the earth as opposed to other places around the big world that they really had no idea of because there weren't mass explorations yet going out into, you know, North America or Antarctica or places like that. They lived in the in the Middle East here. 
There are difficulties in dealing with the plant shrub vegetation issue and seeing these items as a local, geographic, and regional issue. Uh, so to be honest with you, there, there are some challenges to doing this. Richard E. Averbeck, in response to C. John Collins in the book Reading Genesis 1 and 2, an evangelical conversation, writes about the plant shrub issue between Genesis 1 and 2. Quote, in my view, there are several problems here. First, the notion that the Hebrew Eris refers to a particular land here rather than the landed earth as a whole goes against its meaning just a few words earlier at the end of the previous verse in the expression earth and heavens. This proximity and seemingly obvious connection makes the shift in the meaning very unlikely in spite of the use of the same term for a particular land later in the passage. The passage seems to start with the broad view of the whole landed earth and then narrow down to the garden in Eden, probably better, a garden in a luxurious plain to the east of where the Israelites were at the time. It goes on to describe the lands that surrounded it. Second, the terms for plants here are not the same as those used for plants on day three occurs there, but not isib hasada, literally plant crop of the field. The terms for vegetation in verse five refer to desert wilderness shrubs and cultivated crops respectively, unquote. Given Averbeck's comment here, it appeared to lend credence to the true creation accounts in these opening chapters of Genesis. Another major issue is that the order of the creation of the animals, the Lord God had placed Adam in the garden to work and take care of it. And then in verse 19, it says, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Was Adam created before the animals? Because Genesis 1 presents the order as being the opposite in uh, day 6. Uh, in the book, When Critics Ask, a popular handbook on Bible difficulties by Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe, they attempt to address the order of creation regarding humans and animals. Quote, Genesis 2.19, how can we explain the difference in the order of creation events between Genesis 1 and 2? Problem, Genesis 1 declares the animals were created before humans, but Genesis 2.19 seems to reverse this, saying, The Lord God formed every beast of the field and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Implying Adam was created before they were. Solution, Genesis 1 gives the order of events. Genesis 2 provides more content about them. Genesis 2 does not contradict chapter 1, since it does not affirm exactly when God created the animals. He simply says he brought the animals, which he had previously created, to Adam so that he might name them. The focus in chapter 2 is on the naming of the animals, not on creating them. Genesis 1 provides the outline of events, and chapter 2 gives details. Taken together, the two chapters provide a harmonious and more complete picture of the creation events. Unquote. Okay, so here's the thing. We can all, again, get very detailed and intricate with what the language is doing in Genesis 1 and 2 by trying to fit these accounts together. And also, to be honest with you, this is this is well beyond my pay grade, um, reading these 
Hebrew scholars and Bible scholars talking about uh, these little Hebrew words and, and what they mean in a potential context here or there. Uh, this, this is all way beyond me, okay? I, I don't have the training for this. There, there are some challenges, absolutely. I don't think it is as neat as Geisler and Howe state in their, in their book when critics ask. I mean, I think there, there are definitely some tensions, for sure. But I think this is a case where people can miss a beautiful force for focusing on a few trees. So let me circle back to what I learned from my tradition within evangelicalism that I was talking about at the beginning of the show. To recap that view, the common view was that Genesis 1 was a high-level 40,000-foot view of creation, and Genesis 2 was a more zoomed into a specific area with the first two humans. You know, think of a Terrence Malick movie, The Tree of Life. And how, you know, I don't know what it is, 30 or 40 minutes into that movie, he goes into cosmological evolution, showing these events that happen over billions and billions of years. And then the story is also about this, this couple in Texas who tragically loses one of, their, one of their kids. And so the movie is both cosmological, but it's also very, very personal. And I think that is a way to think of these two accounts. There's a cosmological aspect, no doubt, and not really debated within Genesis chapter 1. But then there is a zooming up of the camera to these first human beings, Adam and Eve, and what they were doing in the Garden of Eden. Is this a good way to read the text I believe that it is. By the way, it is not just evangelical Christians who read both Genesis 1 and 2 this way. There are Christians from other traditions who do so as well. Genesis 2, no doubt, becomes more personal. Ancient Hebrew writers were interested in the grand scale, Genesis 1, but also where they personally came from. That ancestry, the family tree, came from Adam and Eve. So maybe the exact order of creation is less important than the other truths that can be gleaned from these two accounts. All right, so that's kind of what's going on with the two creation accounts, and let's go ahead and just walk through some of this Genesis 2 passage and find out what else is going on here. So, quote, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The word for accounts is toldot in Hebrew. When this word is used, a lot of the time it is introducing a genealogy. This note, after the creation account in Genesis 1, introduces the stories of the people God created, and especially God's chosen people, the Israelites. So the beginnings of these lovely people who wrote the Hebrew scriptures and lived so long ago, getting on record their own story, the story of their nation and their interactions with God, there is debate about whether this verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 4 here, uh, belongs at the end of the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 as a kind of final summary statement of sorts, or if this truly is meant to begin the account of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. 
I have likely shown my bias to you already in, by including this verse at the top of the passage that we're covering on this podcast right now. I think this is the beginning of the Adam and Eve account, and I realize this presents another challenge in my analysis of the two creation accounts, since it seems to introduce a creation account. I think you can still make a case for it being a zoom up to action after the creation and perhaps a close up on day six, the creation of animals and humanity specifically. In my view, it actually serves as a decent transition between the inaugural creation story and the action in Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve. Okay, now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground." This passage continues talking about there being no rain and a lack of plants and, and shrubs as we've as we've already covered. They're in obviously a very desert-like climate when they were writing this. You know, this this may have been like modern day Iraq, basically. A hot climate, water can be hard to come by, and therefore a lack of plants cultivated by humanity and a lack of wild brush or nature. So a stream coming up from the earth, uh, this is really interesting. This is wonderful for people who live in a desert, right? If you just had a stream coming up out of the ground and watering the earth, uh, if this is a strong source of water, this is a, definitely a place perhaps to build a civilization around or plant a legendary garden as in the Garden of Eden. So it's hard to interpret the Hebrew word here for streams. It could mean a mist of some sort. It could mean a flood or waters coming from a, a subterranean type place, a subterranean type water source. Um, it does certainly give impression that water is coming up from the ground. And this is before, per the passage, God had sent rain. So it could be that water for plants came from rivers, flooding, or waves from the sea. Okay, now, verse 7. Then God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Dust is significant here. We have all heard the phrase, Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Dust is what humans become when they die. And so according to the Genesis author, humanity was made from dust, dust to dust. There were other myths that talk about humanity being made from clay. Uh, for instance, Akkadian texts speak to humans being made from a cocktail of blood and clay and spit from the gods. Egyptian texts have been have people born out of potter's clay. An interesting contrast, again, because obviously people cannot sculpt with dust, but they can with clay, obviously. Humanity has a humble origin, and this concept aligns with modern evolutionary theory as a concept as well, uh, being that humanity has a common ancestor with chimpanzees on the evolutionary tree of life. The overall message, regardless of all, you know, the creation myths or the Genesis 2 account or evolutionary theory, is of humble beginnings for our race. Regarding the breath of life into Adam, Dr. Walton says in his Genesis commentary, quote, 
This concept, breath of life, is found in Egyptian texts, but not in Mesopotamia. In the instructions of Merkari, the god Re made the breath of life for their nostrils. The next line in the work associates this with humans being in the divine image. One might thereby conclude that the breathing into Adam, the breath of life, is possibly the text description of the mechanism by which people were created in God's image. But this is too facile, for animals also have the breath of life, yet they are not in God's image. The term translated breath is used in the Old Testament 24 times. Though the combination with life is not found elsewhere, Eluhu's speeches in Job equate the breath of God with the spirit of God, and a few passages equate God's breath with destructive judgment. Usually, however, the term refers to all who breathe. The usage makes it clear that all people have the breath of life, so God breathes it into every person who is born. It was not just a first-time thing with Adam, unquote. And that's a, that's a beautiful picture there, a beautiful commentary, God breathing into the nostrils of Adam and subsequently all human beings is a profound truth. The first man became a living human being as God shaped him from the dust. The universal human need to be able to breathe is intertwined with this foundational biological reality of our existence. A journalist, Holly Lebowski Rossi, Lebowski, I love it, love that name, uh, writes about the sacredness of breath in a July 2020 article in Religion News Service. Quote, the normally simple, normally unconscious act of drawing breath has come to define the United States' most pressing problems. The country has been racked by COVID-19, a disease that often steals the breath, and the protests that follow the death of George Floyd, whose dying words were, I can't breathe. Even for those of us looking on, our cumulative discomfort and chronic stress have often provoked an anxiety that causes our breath to tighten and speed up. For centuries, world religions have focused on breath in meditation, mysticism, and as a metaphor for the divine, recognizing breathing as the core of life and perhaps reality itself. Merest breath, all is but mere breath, begins the book of Ecclesiastes in biblical scholar Robert Alter's 2019 translation. She goes on to say, the spirit blows where it will, said the Reverend James Martin, a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large of America Magazine, quoting again from John's Gospel. It has its own direction and purpose, often unknown to humanity. Martin called the spiritual understanding of breath a timeless and beautiful metaphor of God's freedom and power, and noted that the Benedictine monks are taught that while chanting, which slows the breath, they should be mindful of the spirit moving in and out of them. Martin also pointed out that scholars believe that those who died, like Jesus of crucifixion, are asphyxiated, the cause of death in Floyd's case. I hope that all Catholics, all Christians, see the deep connections between the death of one innocent man at the hands of civic authorities in Minneapolis and another in Jerusalem, he said, unquote. Adding together the foundational truths that humanity is made in the image of God from Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 27, 
and God breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of humans establishes again the sacredness of human beings, the preciousness of life. When another human being ends the breath of another, they are violating a fundamental glory of God's own creation. Ending someone else's breath is robbing them of life, experience, love, joy, and all the thoughts and feelings of being alive. It robs them of the invitation and ability to connect with God, their creator, in this life. All right, let's go on to verses 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing in the, to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, so we have the two most famous trees in the history of the world here. Setting the stage for the fateful events that are coming through the famous tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, there, there is just a lot here. So much rich, richness in this passage that, that we're looking at right now in these verses. The message and accounts of these trees have been spread all over the world and have impacted cultures, including a lot of pop culture. Think of how many representations of this setting that artists have given to us over thousands of years. I mean, think about them from paintings to films to sculptures to, to whatever. Um, this, this has been a scene that has been well explored. The Lord God not only created Adam, but he gave Adam a home. God gave Adam a garden to grow food and eat in perpetuity. Keep in mind that earlier in the passage, there were streams that came out of the ground and watered everything around. In other words, God was providing for Adam. All that Adam needed to live was right here in this garden that God had planted for the man in east of Eden. Not only that, the tree of life is here where humans could potentially eat the fruit from this special tree, and it seems like a sort of fountain of youth, kind of in tree form. Humanity would continue to live physically as long as they had access to this specific tree of life and its fruit contents. Wouldn't you really like to know what fruit this was, by the way? Um, physical and spiritual life abounds in this Garden of Eden. Now, keep in mind, this garden, the Garden of Eden, this was not like my parents' little vegetable garden growing up in Kent, Washington. Uh, their vegetable garden was like a small strip that was off of a small patio in our backyard, and it was up against our house. And I remember we had a rhubarb plant that my mom, uh, her name is Sue, by the way, would use to make rhubarb applesauce that I used to just love as a kid. So the Garden of Eden was not like a narrow dirt strip in the back of a suburban house where vegetables are grown. Eden was more like a massive park. Uh, it, it was maybe like one of my favorite parks in all of Seattle, Discovery Park, uh, which is actually the place that Michelle, my wife and I got engaged back in March of 2012. 
This particular Discovery Park is 534 acres. That's pretty big, north of downtown Seattle. Well, kind of, you know, northwest. The Garden of Eden may well have been bigger than this. Discovery Park has big open fields, forests with lots of trees, and a beautiful bluff that you can walk up to and look out at the waters of the ocean via the, the Puget Sound. You can see the Puget Sound out there. And then Bainbridge Island is like way across the water. And then you can hike down this forested path. This is just a beautiful walk to, to the beach with a lighthouse. I don't think the Garden of Eden had a lighthouse necessarily, but it obviously had a lot of trees, two of them named in this text, and probably open fields and agriculture, perhaps for farming, as well as animals roaming about, going to and and fro. So the garden that God planted per the text was in the east of Eden, and this directly implicates that Eden was a larger space beyond the garden. Scholar and commentator Dr. John Walton talks about the complicated etymology of Eden. Quote, because the garden in Genesis was planted in a well-watered place, Eden, it took Eden as its name, but technically speaking, the garden should be understood as adjoining Eden because the water flows from Eden and waters the garden, see Genesis 2.10. In the same way, therefore, that a garden of a palace adjoins the palace, Eden is the source of the waters and the residence of God. And the garden adjoins God's residence. The picture presented is a mighty spring that gushes out from Eden and is channeled through the garden for irrigation purposes. All of these channels thus serve as headwaters for the four rivers flow out in various directions as the waters exit the garden. This type of waterworks was known in the ancient world, a sacred spot featuring a spring with an adjoining well-watered park stocked with specimens of trees and animals, unquote. Wenham writes in his commentary, Gordon J. Wenham, uh, word Biblical Commentary, Genesis 1-15. to It is simpler to associate Eden with its homonym, pleasure, delight. Whenever Eden is mentioned in Scripture, it is pictured as a fertile area, a well-watered oasis with large, large trees growing a very attractive prospect in the arid east. This lush fecundity was a sign of God's presence in and blessing on Eden. E. Hogg suggests in the east evokes the same ideas, for in the east the sun rises and light is favorable biblical metaphor for divine revelation. So it seems likely that this description of the Garden of Eden in the east is symbolic of a place where God dwells. Unquote. Winham goes on to describe Eden as an archetypal sanctuary for God, which goes back to a scholarly idea that all of creation is God's temple. Eden was a place where God's presence was on earth. Quote, the garden was therefore the first place on earth where the Shenankiah dwelt, unquote. Yehuda Kiel in the Sefer Bereshit 1 to 17. Uh, Shenankiah, of course, is the glory of the divine presence. Even while using words such as archetypal and symbolic, Winham does go on to say that the evidence seems to suggest in the writing that ancient Israelites thought of the Garden of Eden as a real place. Um, obviously, debate around this, 
Um, if the writers of Genesis acknowledge Eden as a myth that contains theological truth about humanity and God, or um, thought of Eden as a literal historic beginning. Winham and those in his camp would point to verses 2-4 as the author in Genesis 2, setting up that this is an account, i.e. Israelites were tracing their own history and legacies. Um, Being that is the case, there are fundamentalists and conservatives alike who have been interested in the geographic location of the Garden of Eden. If Eden was real, I don't think it would physically exist anymore. It is important to note that People of this time frame did not write history like we think of it as today. I mean, this is not the same as going to a history class and reading authors trying to factually represent this happened, then this happened, then this person said this, and this person said that. This was a completely different writing style in the ancient times. Um, All right. So with lots of water around for crops and for drinking, the presentation of the Genesis text sets up the Garden of Eden as kind of almost like a center of the world sort of thing. Humanity was provided for here. Again, not only the physical needs, but the garden was included next to the place of God, next to the place of Elohim. So obviously there was a powerful connection between the divine and the human beings who worked here in the garden. So let's talk about these two trees that were mentioned in the text. Presumably in this garden, there were maybe thousands of trees, maybe even more than that. However, two trees get named by the Genesis author. The tree of life is likely best understood as not being a tree of immortality. The tree of life is best understood as granting life and perpetuity. Once again, if a person kept eating from the tree of life, they will keep on living. Um, Continuing access to this tree is vital and critical. At the end of the Bible, the final chapter in Revelation 22, the tree of life makes another appearance in the text and is is described as bearing 12 kinds of fruit and its very leaves are healing for the nations. We aren't here to exegete Revelation 22. I'm kind of breaking my rule of going outside, but I think it is interesting that this same tree is at the beginning of the Bible and then also at the very close of the canon of Scripture. All right, so the second tree that is mentioned is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree has many different interpretations and is probably more mysterious than a lot of us think. Does knowledge contained in the unnamed fruit of this tree mean objective knowledge of good and evil? So someone may not embody or commit or experience evil, but can have knowledge that there are possibilities for good and evil? Does a tree refer to subjective knowledge of good and evil? This is where someone can think and feel subjectively what it is like to be evil. There are larger theological questions here. Christian theology would have God being holy and perfect. who created a beautiful world and rested on the seventh day and then created Adam from the dust of the ground by breathing into his nostrils. Adam at this point in Genesis 2 had not disobeyed yet and therefore was not evil or had not experienced or committed sins against God. However, Adam had to have at least a little bit of knowledge of sin based on God issuing a command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So objectively, Adam could understand that command. 
Good is not eating from the tree that God asked him not to eat from. Evil is disobeying God on this point. Sin is doing something that God has asked us not to do. So a, a deeper point with all of this, knowing good and evil is a characteristic given to God. Uh, verse 322 in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, uh, but not of children. Uh, here, see Deuteronomy 139, Isaiah 7, verses 15 to 16. Uh, the elderly, 2 Samuel 19.35, or people who are inexperienced, 1 Kings 3.9. In other words, th this seems to be introduced as a realm for God only. That is for God, just for God and not the children of God, i.e. human beings. And so human beings in this sense, in the Edenic context, are innocent, as Dr. Walton writes in the NIV application commentary. Why would God command against this knowledge that humanity would be like God? But we didn't become like God. Rather, we were subjected to a curse. And of course, that's coming up in Genesis chapter 3. So verses 10 to 14, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good aromatic resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. So we have the, the geography verse. This, this helps us uh, figure out where exactly we are at in the world or, or thereabouts. And also we have some precious materials, you know, gold sounds good. And this isn't just an advertisement on a right wing radio show or something. I, I guess there's gold in this area. Uh, we still have two major rivers today mentioned in the ancient biblical texts, uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates. We do not know the Pishon and the Gihon today. If someone believes that the Garden of Eden was a, a real historic place, I lean that direction. It is possible that the Pishon and Gihon dried up at some point. Climates on earth change over time. Bodies of water can come and disappear, as we know. The headwaters of the Tigris and the Euphrates River run from the mountains of Armenia between the Black Sea and Lake Van. Those bodies of water are near the source for both rivers. So where was the land of Cush? This was an Egyptian realm and nowadays would be probably like southern Sudan. Uh, the other place mentioned is Ashur, and this was the ancient capital of Assyria, which in modern times would be northern Iraq. So Pishon, the name of the river, directly means the leaper. A river leaping is uh, certainly an interesting word picture. Uh, this is the only place that Pishon is mentioned in the Hebrew scriptures. The Gihon means the springer out. Uh, the verse also mentions the land of Havilah, uh, Winham and the word biblical commentary, Genesis 1 to 15 writes, quote, the land of Havilah, where there is gold, is mentioned in several other passages, uh, Genesis 10, 7, uh, chapter 29, chapter 25, verse 18, and then 1 Samuel 15, 7, and then 1 Chronicles 1, 9, and 23. These suggest that Havilah is in Arabia. Certainly, Arabia was a source of gold in ancient times. On this basis, the Bashan must either be identified with an Arabian river or with the Persian Gulf and Red Sea, which goes around all the land of Havilah. 
unquote. So Havila's location is hotly debated in scholarship circles. These are ancient references. So a lot of these places obviously don't exist anymore. There are groups of the ivory tower thinking type people who study this stuff that suggests Southwest Arabia or Northern Somalia, again, as a possible location for Havila. Apparently, gold was plentiful in this region back in the times of ancient Israel. Another precious resource that was mentioned is aromatic resin called bdellium in other translations. This is compared with manna elsewhere in the Torah in Numbers 11.7. Resin can be used for some types of incense and potentially for medicinal purposes. So it's funny that nowadays it's used in essential oils. Uh, did they have their kind of essential oils back in this time? Uh, Wenham talks about the precious resource in his aforementioned commentary. Um, that would be onyx stone, which there is translation debate about what exactly this resource is as well. Uh, quote, whatever the correct identification of the onyx stone, they were widely used in decorating the tabernacle and temple and in high priestly vestments. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel were engraved on two onyx stones set in gold and attached to the shoulder of the ephod. Pure gold was widely used in covering the sacred furniture, such as the ark, altar of incense, lampstand, and the holiest parts of the tabernacle, paradise in Eden, and later tabernacles share a common symbolism suggestive of the presence of God, unquote. Why bring this quote up? It is another reminder that the text is communicating that ancient Israelites thought of Eden as the center of the world, the place where God dwelt with them. Not only did they have food, plentiful water, and conditional eternal life upon eating from the tree of life, they also had precious resources that were of immense value to them because of their usage in adorning and decorating their sacred artifacts, which reminded them of the unending presence of God in their lives. Okay, verses 15 to 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden and you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So here we have some instructions. God gave the man Adam to work and take care of the garden, the plants, the trees, even a connection with the animals. There is a love and care that is to be demonstrated to God's natural creation. We Humanity is responsible and accountable for careful stewardship of what's around us. We do have reason to believe from the text that the Garden of Eden was not supposed to be fixed to a certain geographical spot for all time. Rather, the function of Adam stewarding, working on the garden, taking care of the garden uh, was not only just to care for a specific space, but also to expand the garden. This is kind of like God's terraforming project. So God creates humanity as God's image bearers, which we learn from chapter one likely means God's representatives. The representatives were to take care of the earth, steward natural creation, and keep in mind the balance between civilization for humans and what should be left wild and natural on planet Earth. The language of work and care is not typical for a person performing agricultural duties. That's interesting, isn't it? Rather, the language is similar to someone who is tasked with a priestly 
responsibility to guard a sacred space. Uh, very interesting. Uh, not typical agricultural, but someone looking after sacred earth, taking care of the earth. Prior to the fall, why would Adam need to guard the garden is an interesting theological question. So, you know, but maybe the answer is it, it's work and caring for the garden. Uh, maybe it's less guarding from some kind of threat, but it, it's more just focused on work and care. Caring for a sacred space was articulated in other cultures of that time, as you can imagine. In uh, Cosmology of Ancient Egypt by J.M. Plumley, he discusses these ideas from the Egyptian context of that time. But whatever, quote, but whatever wise men might think about the purpose of creation and whatever might be the official doctrines about the way in which creation came into being, there was the universal belief that what had been achieved in the beginning of time must be maintained. For mortal men, the most essential task of earthly life was to ensure that the fabric of the universe was sustained. The ancient cosmo cosmogonies were in agreement that obscure forces of chaos had existed before the world was created, and that although in the act of creation they had been cast away to the outer edges of the world, they nevertheless continued to threaten to encroach into the world. The possibility of such a catastrophe could only be averted by the actions of gods and men both working together to maintain the world order. That order, which embraced the notions of an equilibrium of the universe, the harmonious coexistence of all its elements, and its essential cohesion for the maintenance of all created forms, was summed up in the word ma'at. Ma'at, by the way, was moral and ethical principles that guided Egyptian citizens in this day through, through their daily lives. Let's talk again about the two legendary trees, the tree of the life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Tree of the life, tree of life. <laughs> in this verse, we have a command from God. Adam is free to eat from any tree in the garden. There could have been thousands and thousands of trees, but the one tree, the one tree that he has commanded not to eat from is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says there is a consequence from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that consequence is death. All right. These seem like really, really high stakes here. Okay. This is, this is a very high stakes commandment. The passage is likely not referring to spiritual death here in Genesis. The apostle Paul's theology in the New Testament epistles would certainly be referring to spiritual death, a separation from God. But this Genesis passage is likely referring to physical death. Adam would be cut off from the tree of life that by God's provision is granting him everlasting life as he continues to eat it. Um, but although the emphasis here is on physical death and not to, you know, completely bring the apostle Paul's theology into this, um, the ancients would not have known who the apostle Paul was. Um, but it seems to be implied that there is a spiritual death of sorts here as well, because logically, if if God's residence is next to the Garden of Eden and humanity is going to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden, there is a, a physical death element that comes in uh, not having the tree of life anymore. But there also is a kind of spiritual death because they, they don't have a connection with God like they used to have in the Garden of Eden 
when humanity gets kicked out. But that's next chapter, so I don't want to don't want to get ahead of us here. Um, Adam being cut off again from from the tree of youth, we'll call it tree of life, tree of youth, would put him on a trajectory that would eventually bring about his passing away inevitably. And as we'll see in future Genesis passages, this guy lives to an insane old age. I mean, just wild numbers out there, right? Okay, so verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So Adam is the representative of the care for the garden. And God illuminates uh, this profound truth. It is not good for man to be alone. This is a truth that really echoes through our culture today, right? There's a lot of people that talk about a book called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam about how people feel so alone. I think this book is over 20 years old at this point. Uh, but where we're at right now, uh, post-COVID pandemic, or at least you know the, the shutdowns and the lockdowns, COVID is still out there with us. But after the shutdowns and the lockdowns where people were isolated and alone for long periods of time, it seems like there are just tons of articles out there, psychological articles on modern people feeling so disconnected from other people. We, we have this thing in America where we are immersed in a culture of individualism. You're away right away. I love movies. So there's a, a cinematic tradition of Westerns, the Western genre where, you know, there, there's a loner who rides into town and saves the day, sometimes single-handedly from all the bad guys. And then, uh, rides out of town and he's still alone individualism is spiritual poison as per god in this verse god created humanity and knows about the deepest longings and needs of human beings those longings and needs are for other humans for other people we need other people we need each other, and I'm totally preaching now. Okay, so some people zero in on the word helper and thinks they think this delegates a woman who is about to be created uh, to a lesser and more submissive role. Okay, th this is not the case at all. The word suitable helper do not appear anywhere else in the biblical text like this. In fact, suitable appears nowhere else. Scholars will say that this more than likely means that by saying suitable, God is describing needing to create another human being because, let's just face it, animals are not going to be suitable helpers in the way another human could. As for helper, it is also important to mention that Almighty God is mentioned as a helper in Scripture. So the word helper by no means states that a woman is in a lesser role than a man. If we think further about what helper means, if I were to seek help 
with a neighbor uh, repairing an appliance or something. I would go to that neighbor and we would jointly be performing a task. We would both be repairing this appliance or whatever. So one of us may have more knowledge than the other about the specific appliance and what we need to do in order to fix the appliance. And I am just not good at these things. So I would hope somebody else would have knowledge that I don't have. Uh, but we would both be working together to complete this task. Okay. We would be helping each other. We would be suitable helpers for each other. In fact, so uh, bringing it back to the suitable helper thing, a better way to translate helper may be partner. Adam and Eve were partners and they helped each other in caring for the garden that God had provided for them and jointly sharing, at least at this specific time in Genesis chapter two, the fruit of the tree of life. Bible scholar Philip B. Payne, who has written a book, Man and Woman, One in Christ, an exegetical and theological study of Paul's letters, writes about uh, some of these verses that are used sometimes by people to put woman, a woman into a lesser position than a man. And I want to read from his book, Man and Woman, One in, in Christ. Quote, in context, the significance of the woman being created second is to highlight man's need for a partner corresponding to him, not to man's authority over woman. The primary message of Genesis 2, 18 through 20 is that no animal is a suitable partner for man. Nothing in the context implies that man has authority over woman. Only after humankind's disobedience does God predict he will rule over you, which is Genesis 3.16. Now he goes to a second point that sometimes people make, uh, quote, man should have authority over woman because God said in 2.18, I will make a helper suitable for him. Not only is this translation in doubt, it depends on the assumption that helpers are naturally under the authority of those they help. The noun used here, however, throughout the OT, Old Testament, does not suggest helper as in servant, but help, savior, rescuer, protector, as in God is our help. In no other occurrence in the OT does this noun refer to an inferior, but always to a superior or an equal. 16 times it describes God as a rescuer of his people, their strength or power, the remaining three times of a military protector. Help expresses that woman is a help strength who rescues or saves man, unquote. And so there you have it from Philip B. Payne and Man and Woman, One in Christ. Let's move right along to verse 21 here in Genesis chapter 2. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Okay, so causing some kind of a coma to come over Adam for surgery. Surgery to create a suitable helper, a partner in this task of taking care of, of the earth. So this translation that I read is NIV. Okay, so um, first of all, the word made is a verb and just simply means to build. 
Uh, so in this, this could be used throughout the Hebrew scriptures, such as building a temple within the city or building walls around a city, as was common in that time. You'd have a city with, with high walls around it, uh, perhaps building a watchtower to keep a lookout over the city. So it, it, mean, it made means to build, to, to construct, to make something. So God is making another human being out of Adam. Now, what's interesting about this translation, this is the NIV translation that I read, is um, it is translated that the Lord God took man's ribs out of him. And this is an interesting translation, and I think most translations probably have man's ribs, like it's usually translated that way. Um, There is some question about this, by the way. So the word that is translated rib is not used as a bone of anatomy anywhere else in the Hebrew scriptures. The word could be based upon Akkadian culture of that day. So it could mean like the general area of the body where the ribs are. But this also would include the flesh and the muscles. So is the text portraying God as like taking a chunk out of Adam's side to fashion Eve again, to, to make or to build Eve? Did God divide Adam somehow in half? Like what is going on here? And you know, what is interesting is there are some scholars who say this actually is not a rib that is being talked about in this passage. Do you all want to find out maybe what this is talking about? Well, I have an article here from uh, the Biblical Archaeological Society. It was actually published on June 11th, 2023. It is credited to the Biblical Archaeology Society staff. The title of the article is The Adam and Eve Story, Eve Came From Where? And it says Adam and Eve in the Bible as a subtitle. Let me just quote this for you all, and uh, you may find this especially fascinating. Quote, the Hebrew word that is traditionally translated as rib is tesla. Again, I'm, I'm probably butchering this stuff if there's a Hebrew expert out there. Uh, Zaini Zevit, distinguished professor of biblical literature and Northwest Semitic languages at American Jewish University in Bel Air, California, believes that this translation is wrong, as do many scholars. It was first translated as rib in the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible from the mid-3rd century BCE. That was before Jesus was born. However, a more careful reading of the Hebrew word for rib in the Adam and Eve story suggests that Eve was created from another very different part of Adam's anatomy, His os baculum, penis bone. Zavit carefully examines the account of the creation of woman in the Bible in his article, Was Eve Made from Adam's Rib or His Baculum? which appears in the September-October 2015 issue of Biblical Archaeological Review. Of the 40 appearances of Tesla in the Bible, the Adam and Eve story is the only place where it is translated as rib. Usually it means the side of something. Zevit explains the nuance of this word. This Hebrew word occurs some 40 times in the Hebrew Bible where it refers to the side of a building or of an ark, altar or ark, a side chamber, 
or a branch of a mountain. In each of these instances, it refers to something off-center, lateral to a main structure. The only place where Tesla might be construed as referring to a rib that branches off from the spinal cord is in Genesis 2, 21-22. According to Zevit, rib is the wrong translation for Tesla. In the Adam and Eve story in the Bible, Zevit believes that Tesla should be translated as a non-specific general term, such as one of Adam's lateral limbs in the Adam and Eve story. Thus, it refers to limbs lateral to the vertical axis of an erect human body, hands, feet, or in the case of males, the penis, unquote. So, so there you have it from, uh, from a scholar. Um, I, again, me being the lay person here, I, I tend to focus in, I, I think this is an interesting tidbit, tidbit. I tend to focus in on the, the evidence of where the text is going as Eve was created from Adam's side. So in other words, they are side by side. They are partners. I think, I think there's strong evidence that this is what the text is, is communicating they, they, side by side partners to work in the Garden of Eden to help each other uh, to be together as we're going to see here as the text moves on. God finishes his surgery here on Adam. He closes up the place of flesh, so he he heals Adam after forming Eve out of his side, or perhaps from you know the penis bone, and then uh, verse twenty two. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And we have this poetic section in verse 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So Adam here is not exercising authority over Eve by by naming her in this passage like he names the animals. There, there's totally different things going on here with the language and particularly with the syntax. Adam was recognizing Eve as a human being. They both were human, flesh of my flesh. She is the, the same as Adam as far as being a human being, as far as bearing God's image. So just a, a, a beautiful revelation here, an exclamation, uh, praising God for what he has made. And, and you know, it, uh, it seems like there's a bit of excitement here, a joy of having a partner, having a suitable helper. So we go to verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife and they become one flesh. All right. So the narration moves on. And this verse, verse 24, has become a foundation of recognizing a marriage relationship. A man leaves his father and mother, he's united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Although there, there are some significant, interesting you know, details here as you, as you look at this verse. Uh, for instance, united to his wife. Interestingly enough, in ancient Israelite culture, a woman is usually a woman usually leaves her parents and then becomes a part of the man's tribe. But this is actually worded the opposite. Um, a man leaves his father and mother 
and is united to his his wife. So the narrator is you know pointing back to the story of Adam and Eve and saying this is why we do this. This is why we have have these relationships this way. And so then we have sexual desire as a natural human impulse is talked about here, both with man and woman being united in union and also being or becoming one flesh. Uh, this follows God's instructions from Genesis 1.28, where God says, be fruitful and increase in number. So the Genesis author authors here are tying these things together, tying these creation accounts together. There has been some interesting thoughts on a man leaving his father and mother, and he's united to his wife, and they become one flesh, as to just questions, theological questions, as to whether this actually does refer to a marriage relationship. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Bird, for instance, has done some work here, and she has a book coming out. Her forthcoming book is called Marriage in the Bible, What Do the Texts Say? Again, this is by Dr. Jennifer Bird. I have not read the book, obviously. It's coming out in December 2023 is what I saw. Um, but I have heard some interviews with Dr. Bird, and she has some interesting points to make here about Genesis 2.24. Um, the first thing that she talks about is in the Bible, there isn't a conception of marriage for love, especially on the part of a woman. According to how it worked in the Bible, men would take a woman. The fathers of their daughter, the would-be wife, the father would give the wife to the man, and usually there was some kind of, of payment. So the woman in this context did not have any agency, really, in, in being married to a man in the Bible. The other issue here is we're in Genesis chapter 2, but we will see a few chapters down the road. There is polygamy. There are men who have many different wives, and this isn't really in Genesis, at least that I'm aware of off the top of my head, specifically condemned by God or condemned by the law. So polygamy is just, just a few chapters away. There are different uh, arrangements, even in Genesis, that, that are made. So Dr. Bird makes the point here in this text, there is no Hebrew verb for marry or to marry here. There's no nouns to differentiate between husband and wife that exist here. And it's not necessarily defining an institution as it would come to be known as marriage. So she emphasizes, and I think this point is right, she emphasizes that Genesis 1 and 2 here are primarily concerned with the be fruitful and multiply. That is the command from God. So be fruitful and multiply, have lots of children so Israel can become a greater nation. You know, here the, the ancient Israelites believed that they were God's chosen people. This was God's chosen nation. And uh, they were surrounded by huge, mighty empires who throughout their history were oppressing them. Uh, so they were concerned with having more babies, getting more people in their tribe. And that, that was the concern here. Now, to challenge Dr. Bird, there, there is evidence of rabbis who acknowledged that Genesis chapter 2 
Verse 24 is a foundation for marriage, even, even before Jesus was born. I mean, this, this does go back pretty far. And given that in the, in the biblical context, what we're talking about here is beginnings. You know, this is the, the ancients writing this were concerned about the very beginnings of everything, the beginning of the universe, the beginning of the world. And I think it is fair to interpret this text as the beginning of a marriage relationship. In other words, a marriage relationship where people, a man and woman can be fruitful and multiply and have kids in order to grow their family and thus to grow a nation during this time, the nation of Israel. So lots of different, lots of interesting debate on uh, this passage, on the specific verse, and to hear a different perspective, you can certainly pick up Dr. Jennifer uh, Dr. Jennifer Bird's book, December 2023, Marriage in the Bible. I'll have a link to that in show notes if you're interested. But the vast majority of scholars take this as a, a marriage between Adam and Eve. That it, it, there may not be a, a verb that says they were married. It may not announce them as husband and wife, according to... Hebrew nouns, um, but but the context here is they are leaving parent. He is cleaving to his wife, and they are becoming one flesh. It, it's it's I think fair to interpret this as the beginnings of an institution of marriage. There would certainly be other arrangements down the road, and we will get to those as we go through the Bible. Uh, but this is you know the foundation of a of a marriage relationship. And I think this passage is very uh, beautiful, and and it's like a, a deep base note to me uh, because I value my own marriage to my wife, Michelle, my partner, and we, we have two kids. I think looking at these verses is how I can see something really, really ancient and then how it, it uh, speaks to us today. In, in relationships that we that we have today. Okay, the final verse of Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They were in their own little uh, nudist colony here, <laughs> Garden of Eden. Uh, they were both naked and felt no shame. So, uh, being naked in the garden, they were united together. And it's interesting that they there was no shame that was felt here as, as they were becoming one flesh. So in one clear sense, Adam and Eve had nothing to hide from one another. They fully saw each other. This was before the fall. So they had a strong connection with each other, uh, with this relationship that they had in the Garden of Eden. they Again, they were partners. They were intimate. Sexuality was and is not a dirty thing, but rather a glorious part of creation. That is, that is what is being communicated here. They didn't feel shame about being sexual beings or having sexual desire. And, and that certainly uh, certainly works. Um, and there is another way to think about this passage. And truth be told, this is likely what the text means. There was a childlike innocence to both Adam and Eve, not childish, but childlike. Like children who see 
you know, no need of clothes. And they, they run and dance and work in this beautiful garden where everything is provided for them. And they live their lives with this all-consuming innocence. Again, this is prior to the fall. But with a sense of innocence can come a, a real deep sense of being naive. And it is quite intentional on behalf of this Genesis writer to end, uh, well, I shouldn't say ending chapter two here, because again, when this was written, there were no chapters in the Bible. Uh, but I think as, as the Bible was being put together, and even as the chapters were added, it certainly is a bit of intentionality by the person dividing these chapters up to perhaps end Genesis chapter two right here. The sense of the sense of playful dancing and naive innocence right before things go really wrong in Genesis chapter three. So it's 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 leaving things where there is a sense of of wonder and things working together, naming the animals, becoming one flesh, being really strongly connected to God here in this Garden of Eden. God is is very close and working with humanity, um, it is uh, quite the beautiful picture. So, and obviously in Genesis chapter three, naivete of Adam and Eve will be played upon by the serpent and the serpent's craftiness. Okay, so Adam and Eve are in this garden. It's a garden for God, not necessarily for humans. If the heavens and the earth, the universe itself is God's temple, Eden is where God dwells on the earth, and the garden created in the east of Eden is where humanity was created and tasked to work. Again, as God's representative, what I think is the best explanation of image of God, Imago Dei, in this glorious world that God had created. Humanity had a close-knit relationship with God. God's abode was right next door to them, literally in this garden space that they were working in. All right. This episode has gone longer than I intend these to go, but there was so much to talk about here in Genesis chapter 2. Again, you know, Genesis 1 and 2 is just it, the word foundational. It's foundational to so many different things, including what Christians believe is, is all of reality. Um, and circling back to this two creation account stories that I talked about at the top of the episode, I really do think the beauty of how Genesis 1 and 2, even though they probably were written by different authors, the beauty of how they fit together is God is seen as sovereign and all-powerful, literally speaking the world and the universe into existence and speaking all of these things of reality into existence by his own words in Genesis chapter 1. And then in Genesis chapter 2, as I pointed out in this episode, God is seen as being very close and involved, forming humanity out of the dust bringing the animals to Adam so he can name them, providing for humanity with with trees and fruit and this lovely garden. Um, God is, so those two things both go together. They are not mutually exclusive. God can be sovereign and all-powerful and very close, very loving, very near to humanity. 
And that is uh, just an extraordinary, extraordinary picture to think about uh, theologically and think about in reality. All right, this has been another episode of Does the Bible Say That? Um, With me, your host, Dave Lester, thank you so much for listening to this episode and nerding out on the Bible with me. As a reminder, this will not be a regularly released show. I will likely record a stockpile of episodes and then release them out weekly until there aren't any more, and then there will be breaks. So just to let you know that up front, I hope you will continue following along with me. The best thing to do is to subscribe to this show uh, so new episodes will show up in your feed as I get them out into the world. Please, wherever you get podcasts, leave a rating and a review as that helps others find our show. You can find me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Dave J. Lester. I'm also on the Blue Sky app if you look me up by name there. You can also listen to me on my other podcast, Veterans of Culture Wars, with my good friend Zach, as we talk all about evangelical Christianity. Thank you so much again for listening to this podcast on the Bible. Until next time.